Welcome to another episode of A Life in Biography. This is uh, titled, this episode, The Story of My Psychoanalysis and Sylvia Plath. Well, it's not my psychoanalysis that you're going to be hearing about. She read a book called The Story of My Psychoanalysis. And you'll see why that's important as I read from this excerpt from my work in progress, which is titled The Making of Sylvia Plath. I'd like to say a little bit about that book to give you some context for what I'm going to be reading here. It's The Making of Sylvia Plath is a kind of intellectual biography. It, it's, it covers her whole life, and I don't mean it's just about what she thought about uh, or even what she read, uh, although the the connection between thinking and feeling and one's life experience is what I'm trying to get at in the making of Sylvia Plath. And it's um, a particularly fruitful exercise in her case because she uh, annotated, underlined books. Now, the story of my psychoanalysis is not underlined, uh, and there are no annotations because we don't have her individual copy, unfortunately. But a lot of the books I deal with in the making of Sylvia Plath do have underscoring. They have marginal comments as well. And it's the closest I can get to uh, getting really inside of her mind. The other thing I'll say about what I'm reading, too, is it forms part of what I'm trying to present to readers, which is People write about the bell jar, or think about the bell jar as autobiographical, and of course it is in many ways based on class experience. But for many years, uh, at least six years, perhaps longer, she began looking for literary models uh, that might help her in writing her own novel. And she declared the intention of writing a novel over several years and couldn't she had the elements of it, but they couldn't quite cohere. She didn't quite know how to use her own experience to create something more than her own experience. And so this book, The Story of My Psychoanalysis, forms part of several uh, works of fiction that she was looking at that I will be describing in the making of Sylvia Plath that ultimately did lead to the creation of the bell jar. So here goes. On August 27th, 1952, Sylvia Plath read The Story of My Psychoanalysis by John Knight, the pen name of a famous scientist who was sick and unhappy and didn't know why. I'm quoting from the uh, cover of the paperback edition. His story could be yours, announced the Pocket Books edition published in June 1952. The book first appeared in October 1950, but it is likely that Plath read the 25-cent paperback. This story of redemption and recovery is part of Plath's preparation for what she initially called her potboiler novel, The Bell Jar. Knight's book claimed to discover a secret self in a startling confession that leads to a new and better life through psychoanalysis. I think it's time to look closely at the story of my psychoanalyst, psychoanal, 
psychoanalysis, which has uh, so far been overlooked by Plath's biographers. The title does not appear in any of the Plath biographies. And how this book spoke to her well-known interest in psychology and the popular market for fiction. She was very interested in that as well. The story of my psychoanalysis is not supposed to be fiction, yet it contains dialogue, some of it extending over several pages, so that what purports to be fact seems like a fiction by John Knight, who, in this respect, is kin to Victoria Lucas, the pseudonym Plath chose for her novel. Writing with a pen name presumably separated the author of the bell jar from the elements of her own life that could uh, could be read into the novel. But choosing to write as Victoria Lucas also created a character author and gave free reign to invent rather than simply report a life. So it may also have been for John Knight, doubly disguised, not only because he was a chemist who did not want his true identity discovered, but also because John Knight, in quotation marks, represented a switch to a Gentile name that his Jewish father had assumed so as to assimilate into an anti-Semitic society. The story that could be yours, that was on the paperback cover, in other words, had to be told, captured in the boundaries of a book that could not be traced to its origins. The story of my psychoanalysis is not in Plath's library, so we cannot know what she might have underlined or annotated. But toward the end of the book, there emerges a hatred that Plath recognized in herself as the result of her own therapy, what Knight calls the discharge of the deepest and most hostile impulses, the murderous drive and the killing of ourselves when the murderous impulses happen to be directed inwardly. He equates these feelings of hatred, which have exacerbated his life-threatening ulcers, with the Holocaust, and realizes that what he repeatedly calls his overreaction to the slightest expression of anti-Semitic sentiments triggers his own bestiality, his desire to hurt others. Through therapy, he realizes as well that the same factors which led to the bestialization of a great nation under Hitler can operate among ourselves. Knight's self-incrimination brings to mind the declaration in Plath's poem, Daddy, Every Woman Adores a Fascist, and also the bell jar, which begins with the summer they executed the Rosenbergs. When Esther Greenwood says to Hilda in the magazine office, isn't it awful about the Rosenbergs? Hilda answers, yes. And Esther thinks, at last I felt I had touched a human string in the cat's cradle of her heart. But no. Hilda nonchalantly adds, it's awful such people should be alive. Hilda yawns. Her pale orange mouth opened on a large darkness. Fascinated, I stared at the blind cave behind her face until the two lips met and moved and the dibbick spoke out of its hiding place. And she's quoting here. Hilda, she's quoting Hilda. Hilda says, I'm so glad they're going to die. 
That is the story of psychoanalysis that John Knight reiterates, those demonic forces that are beneath the surface of polite society. The ulcerating tensions that led to those operations Aurelia Plath suffered to repair a fragile intestinal tract that became a constant worry for her daughter. Dr. Boischer, Plath's therapist, had no trouble recognizing herself as Dr. Nolan in the bell jar and never seems to have felt any need to object to her portrayal or to correct the record in any significant respect. She remained, as in therapy itself, a projection of her patient's perceptions, much as Dr. Maxwell appears in the story of my psychoanalysis. Just as John Knight is surprised that the psychiatrist does not argue with him or express shock at some of Knight's hostility toward others, Esther is disarmed by Dr. Nolan's equable response to her patient's rejection of her mother. This is from the novel. I hate her, I said, and waited for the blow to fall. But Dr. Nolan only smiled at me, as if something had pleased her very, very much, and said, I suppose you do. Why is Dr. Nolan pleased? Because, as Dr. Boischer told biographer Harriet Rosenstein, it had taken weeks to get Plath to admit she bore any hostility toward her mother. In the bell jar, Esther shuts down when examined by several strange men and visits from friends whose curiosity alienates her. Only after several sessions with Dr. Maxwell is Knight willing to confess how much he hates his father. In both cases, the psychiatrist creates the conditions in which the patient no longer feels judged or expects that punishment will follow an expression of patricidal or matricidal emotions. We don't know, of course, if, pa if Plath compared Dr. Boischer to Dr. Maxwell, or if Dr. Maxwell in any sense provided an inspiration for the creation of Dr. Nolan. But the novelist may have been struck by the absence of jargon and psychiatric buzzwords in the treatment John Knight received. Dr. Maxwell eschews, or eschews, Freudianisms. I never talked about egos and ids with Dr. Nolan, Esther Greenwood recalls. In both cases, the therapy is not programmatic. Neither Dr. Maxwell nor Dr. Nolan initiates what their patients are supposed to talk about. Both John Knight and Esther Greenwood recover a sound sense of themselves, but they are not cured since no cure is possible. At the termination of treatment, Dr. Maxwell sums up the good results, but also Knight's weakness, weaknesses and danger spots, noting we can aspire to perfection but never attain it. Upon her release from treatment, Esther notes, I'm quoting from the novel, I had hoped at my departure I would feel sure and knowledgeable about everything that lay ahead. After all, I had been analyzed. Instead, all I could see were question marks. The way ahead is fraught with doubt and with possibilities that every human being encounters. Knight quotes Tolstoy on the circulatory system of human identity. This is Tolstoy. Men are like rivers. The water is the same in each and alike in all. But every river is narrow here is more rapid there, here slower, 
there broader, now clear, now cold, now dull, now warm. It is the same with men. Every man carries in himself the germs of every human quality. And sometimes one manifests itself, sometimes another. And the man often becomes unlike himself while still remaining the same man. Esther Greenwood reads from Finnegan's Wake about, I'm quoting again from the novel, she reads in Finnegan's Wake about River Run, past Eve and Adams, from swerve of shore to bend a bay, brings us by a commodious vicus of circulation back to Houthcastle and environs. That's a quote from Finnegan's Wake that's in the bell jar. Vicus, a word of Roman origin for a village within a rural area, is part of the river run, the hundreds of years of humanity that Tolstoy describes and that joy sees is never-ending. The small letter that begins the river run of a sentence might mean, Esther supposes, that nothing ever really began all new with a capital letter, but that it just flowed on from what came before. Eve and Adams was Adam and Eve, of course, but it probably signified something else as well. That's Esther speaking. The something else, she hazards, is maybe a pub in Dublin. Joyce is a lot to unpack, but so is Plath. And by the way, uh, when you look at Plath, uh, she often emulates E.E. E. Cummings in not using capital letters. Joyce is a lot to unpack, but so is Plath. She is here, I think, playing with concepts of the universal and the particular, with Adam and Eve and a pub, with places and persons, rivers and humanity. Uh, part of what I'm trying to do in the making of Sylvia Plath, and it's what Heather Clark was trying to do in her biography, is in one sense, Plath is no special. It's not special. Uh, she's not, as some people think, just some screwed up writer. What Plath experiences and the way, reason why people identify with Plath is because she goes through a gamut of emotions that most of us at one time or another have experienced, whether we've been suicidal or not. We have experienced those feelings. And that's what Plath is here to tell us about. Uh, here's my last paragraph. It is possible, of course, that the story of my psychoanalysis had no impact on Plath whatsoever, except to say that she did, after all, make a river of her reading, and that everything she read ran over the borders of a book's pages and into her imagination and spilled out into her life as she created characters unlike herself, and it remaining the same Sylvia Plath. Thanks for listening.